The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. We've launched into our uh, current sermon series on this life of David. Um, and the series is called After God's Heart. And so we're now into the uh, third message. And we're going to cover, um, you know, the most famous story in the David narrative. Uh, the story of David and Goliath today found in First Samuel 17. Um, let's pray and look to the Lord. Um, God, we do look to you because you are the author of this book. And in many ways, um, the stories that we find in this book um, strike us as a mystery. Um, Aspects of these stories that are difficult to understand. And yet we know that you are a living God who is here with us and that can help us in our understanding. And so we invite you to teach us and help us to understand what your words mean into our lives this day, for we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, If you were here last week, I talked about how we need to understand this rise of this man named David to the throne of Israel in the context in which it occurred. And that context is of a nation called Israel that was unique among all the other nations in that they didn't have an earthly king because the message was given to the Israelites that God would be your king. So they didn't have a human king. But when the Israelites surveyed that situation and realized um, that they didn't have this human leader that they could look to and rally around, it was kind of distressing to them. They kind of felt naked by it and they didn't like it. And so... Um, They demanded a human king and said, give us a king. We want to be like all the other nations out there. They get a king. How come we don't get a king? And the prophet Samuel warned them saying, if you get an earthly king, uh, he's going to take your sons and daughters. And he's going to tax the daylights out of you and take your farms and your fields and take whatever he wants from you. He's going to abuse you and use you. But despite those warnings, the people of Israel said, it doesn't matter to us. We don't care. Give us a king. And so basically what God said to Samuel is, um, give them a king. First, king. first Samuel chapter 8, verse 19 to 20. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us. And go out before us, and, f- and here's the key that we're going to look at today, and fight our battles. Fight our battles. And so God tells the prophet Samuel that this demand for a human king is nothing less than a rejection of God as their king. 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And so in looking for an earthly king to lead his people, God was looking for a leader 
who could bring his people back to him. A people that had rejected him and turned their backs on him. And this is what makes David unique in Israel's history is that more so than any other king that Israel had, here was a man that, as it is said, sought after God's own heart. More than any other king, David longed for God to rule his people. Because David understood that Israel only had one true king, and that was God himself. Only one who was really worthy of being the king of Israel. And that was Yahweh, the God of Israel. It is in this context that we have to understand the story today. The story of David and Goliath is the most famous story in the life of David. It is, in fact, arguably among the best-known stories in all of the Bible, if not all of literature. Even those who have never stepped foot inside a church know the story of David and Goliath. The problem, though, is that it's probably one of the most misunderstood stories in terms of its meaning, what it really means. It's popularly understood as a story about the triumph of the underdog, right? Uh, We talk about David and Goliath to describe a conflict with seemingly impossible odds and the improbable victory that is stolen against those odds by the underdog. It's the the story of David and Goliath is a feel-good story of the little guy winning beating the system. David and Goliath is often portrayed as an inspiring story that gives us courage to face our giants in our life. But I'm going to argue that this is actually not what the story of David and Goliath is ultimately about. You know, the image of David that I've been using for the sermon series, for the artwork for this sermon series. Uh, It's a photo, actually, of Michelangelo's famous sculpture of David. And what's interesting about this sculpture, and amazingly, Michelangelo did this sculpture uh, when he was only 26 years old, okay? By then, he was already a master. Almost every single sculpture of David and every painting of David prior to Michelangelo, capturing David and Goliath, captured the moment of David's victory. Typically, it's a picture of David standing on top of the body of Goliath, maybe with his head in his hands. But Michelangelo decided, in creating this sculpture of David, to capture not David in victory, but David right at the moment before he fought Goliath. And so he posed David with a sling over his shoulders and with a small stone in his hand. But I think the thing that captures us the most in this sculpture that Michelangelo did of David is this intense stare in his eyes. David is clearly staring down Goliath. But it feels like David was trying to capture something more than that. It's as if David is looking out into the horizon at his own destiny, contemplating how after this moment, his life 
would never be the same again. Because before that day, David was an unknown shepherd boy. But after that day, he would become a nationally celebrated hero. His life would never be the same again. The story starts out very dramatically with the Philistines encamped on one hill and the Israelites encamped on the opposite hill. And between them lies what is known as the Valley of Elah. But instead of charging into battle with these two armies, a strange scene unfolds that day. 1 Samuel 17, verse 4 to 10 captures the scene, and it says this, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. And let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Great emphasis in this story is placed on the sheer size and awesomeness of the soldier named Goliath, his champion. This is a picture of Zhang Junkai. <laughs> he is the tallest Chinese person in the world at 7 foot 11. Tallest man in China. But he's not even the tallest man in the world. Goliath was taller, okay? But he wasn't built like a stick. He was built like the rock, okay? It's just awe-inspiring to think about a human being that large. His armor alone weighed 125 pounds. The tip of his spear, just the head of it, was 15 pounds. It would be like duct taping a 15-pound bowling ball on the end of an eight-foot stick and having the strength to pick that bowling ball up and throw it at somebody with enough velocity to actually act like a weapon. It gives you a sense of how enormous this guy was. And the stakes couldn't be higher because if you fought this guy and you lost... It means that your wife and your children would become slaves of these people. You can understand how terrifying a situation this was to the Israelites. And this added detail. Who do you think felt more pressure in the Israelite camp than anyone else to accept the challenge? It was Saul. 
I mean, here comes the giant of Philistine stepping forward and he goes, give me a man. And all the Israelite soldiers are like, we got a, we got a giant. <laughs> They're all probably like pointing at Saul. Because we're told that Saul was head and shoulders taller than any other Israelite in the land. If anyone felt pressure to answer Saul's uh, Goliath challenge, it would have been Saul. I think Saul truthfully walked around that Israelite camp like this everywhere, (laughs) trying to look as small as possible. Because after all, he himself was a giant among men. And so the Israelite logic was, we need our big guy to fight their big guy. And who is our big guy but our king? And so you can imagine the stares that Saul would have gotten around camp as the soldiers passed by him and said, what is he waiting for? Why isn't our king fighting this guy? Why won't he accept the challenge and fight for us? I mean, what good is all of his size if he's never going to use it in battle? But the interesting thing is Saul didn't have the courage to fight Goliath. 1 Samuel 17, verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul was just as afraid as the little soldiers next to him. And this wasn't a one-time challenge. Twice a day, we're told, for 40 days, that's 80 times Goliath would come out to the Israelite camps to taunt them and ridicule them. And every one of these challenges twice a day was an in-your-face reminder of what cowards they were. Eugene Peterson writes, Goliath dominated the scene. His taunts across the valley teasing and provoking the Israelites. Each day made each man a little more of a coward. Goliath, his size, his brutality, his cruelty, centered the world. Goliath was the pole star around which everyone took his bearings. In other words, I think every soldier dreamt about Goliath in that camp every night. He dominated their minds, then their imaginations. All they could think about was this guy, Goliath, that was challenging them. And I want to ask you if you can identify with what the Israelites faced in that valley of Elah that day. What Saul must have been feeling. Being forced to confront his greatest fears. Day after day, every day, a fresh reminder that he didn't have the courage to face the challenge that he was confronted with in his life. And I want to say this to everyone here. If you haven't faced it already in your life, that day will come in your life when your faith will be brought to a true test. When you will be forced to reveal whether you really believe that there is a living God who is on your side. I think living in these modern times, we don't talk a lot about the subject of courage 
I don't think courage is a virtue that seems actually all that necessary in our day. It's not like the ancient times when life was so much more brutal. Um, I don't think Glenview or Northbrook or Palatine are at risk of being pillaged by a neighboring clan. Um, I don't think we worry about a plague hitting Chicagoland and wiping out half the population. It really struck home to me how easy life in America is when we lived in Africa for five years. I remember one of my fellow doctors, a Kenyan lady, was going to do a call in the middle of the night at the hospital one night. And, you know, there's no electricity out there on that way to the hospital, and so you just got to have a flashlight walking through this forest area to get to the hospital from the mission station. And in the next morning report, the the morning report at the hospital the next day, with her voice trembling, she said, I saw a big snake <laughs> in the forest, and I had to run away from it. Uh, and it went inside this hole in one of the trees, and it's still there. <laughs> I was on call that night. And that night when I was walking to the hospital, because that area has some of the most venomous snakes in the world <laughs> in that Rift Valley area. There are black mambas there and all kinds of deadly snakes. And so for the next month, I mean, that snake was spotted repeatedly on that path to the hospital. And every night, I'm like walking like this, you know, looking out for a snake that's going to bite me as I walk. Never had to deal with that in America as a doctor. I remember driving in our land cruiser that we had in the middle of the Curiel Valley in this deserted road where no cars pass, and getting a flat tire. <laughs> and I had never thought about how to change a tire on this car. So I took out the jack. This car was imported from Japan. And someone had put huge knobby tires on it, and the jack went up to about half the height <laughs> of, the, of, the, of the car. And I was stuck out in the middle of nowhere in like 100-degree desert heat, and I tried to raise the jack, and it went to full height, and it still was a gap this big. And there were no rocks anywhere. I had to walk miles trying to find rocks big enough to put under that jack. And I started getting dehydrated. I happened to go grocery shopping, and I had a two-liter thing of Coca-Cola in my car. And I just guzzled that whole thing down. And when I ran out of Coca-Cola several hours into this mission... I was like, what am I going to do? There was no cell signal. Not a single car had passed me. And I thought, I might die in the desert. (laughs) In America, we live in such a safe and controlled environment. And so as a result, I don't think we talk much about this issue of courage. But I'm going to argue that courage is just as much needed in our day here in America as it was in the ancient times. It's just that that courage looks different today. While we may not be fighting off wild beasts that are invading our backyard, I think we are controlled by our fears far more than we realize and to devastating effect in our life. A study was done in which uh, sexually active college students 
were solicited for this experiment. And what they had done is they had shown these college students these very graphic images of STDs, sexually transmitted diseases. And the particular one they were focusing on is herpes. After they showed them the slideshow, <laughs> they drew all of these college students' blood. And then what they told the students is this. We're going to send this blood to the lab to have it tested for herpes. And you see how bad it is <laughs> if you get herpes. So we're going to test you for it. And this test is completely confidential and it's completely free. And we'll send you the results in the mail in a week. And then they added, and, and they figured this is like, they assumed that pretty much 100% of the subjects in this study would want to know their test results. I mean, wouldn't you? They added one more dimension to the study to just tip the scales even further. And they said this, if you do not want your test results, okay, if you do not want your test results, you have to pay $10 out of your own pocket to not get the results, okay? So, so you understand, they, they pretty much expected 100% of these college students to go, of course, I want the test results. But here is the crazy thing. 20% of the subjects paid $10 not to have the test results mailed to them. And what they discovered was this, that those graphic images that they showed at the beginning of the experiment created such a strong fear response in the students that what was initiated, what was known as the ostrich effect. <laughs> Great name, right? It is burying your head in the sand <laughs> so that you don't have to deal with reality. And what that experiment showed was the power that our fears can have on our lives of controlling us and causing us to do things that make no sense at all and in the end end up potentially really hurting us. But there's something in our human psyche, right, that says ignorance is bliss and I would rather not know than to know if it's bad news. And as a doctor myself, I have witnessed this ostrich effect among patients over and over again. Patients who would come to my office in advanced stages of cancer or some other terminal illness. And what's interesting is when you interview them, you sort of wonder, why didn't you come in sooner? Why did you wait this late when we cannot do anything for you? And what they would usually tell you when you interview them is that they knew they, something was wrong in their body for months before they ever came in, but they buried their head in the sand and just hoped it would go away. And they finally came to my office when things got so bad that they had no choice but to seek medical help. And by then, it's too late. There's no drug, no radiation therapy that's going to cure it. I want to ask you, what are the fears that control you? Do you even understand how your life is controlled by your fears? Maybe for you, it's a, a fear of intimacy and vulnerability. 
See, we always put up a wall in front of others, even loved ones, and you never let anybody in. Maybe it's a fear of failure. So you never take any risks in your life. You can never be generous and giving because you're always worried that one day the other shoe may drop. Maybe it's a fear of rejection. And so you never let anybody see who you really are on the inside. I wonder if there is a Goliath in your life that is laughing at you and asking you the question every one of us has to face. Where is your God? Where is this God that you claim to follow and worship and love? Show him to me if he is real. David is too young to even be a soldier in this battle. But his three older brothers have been enlisted into Saul's army. And so his father, Jesse, sends David to go to this battlefield and to bring them food. In verses 20 to 23, it says, And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. So David happens to arrive right at the strategic moment when Goliath is making his morning challenge. And curious, he leaves the food that he brought for his brothers behind, and he, as a little boy, rushes to the front lines to see what's going on, what all the commotion is about. And what's interesting is that up to this point in the David story, David has not spoken a single word. He's been mute the entire time. But now, for the first time, David actually speaks. We hear his voice. And the first words out of his mouth are glorious. Because in verse 26, it says this, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What a breath of fresh air that David brings to the suffocating fear that has controlled this camp in this valley of Elah. The entire Israelite army is paralyzed with fear, and along comes this kid who is totally confused by what he's witnessing. And he's basically saying to his older brothers, why are all you guys just sitting here? Why don't one of you just go over and kill this fool? Essentially, David is asking the question, doesn't the fact that the living God is on our side make a difference in any of this? It's interesting that the defining characteristic that David notices about Goliath is not his sheer enormity, which is what everyone else is noticing. The distinguishing characteristic of Goliath that David keys in on is the fact that he is uncircumcised. That's what David sees. 
In other words, what he is saying is, we are the covenant people of God. God is with us. This guy is a Gentile. He does not know God. Why are we afraid of this guy? And it's as if he is asking his brothers and all the other soldiers there that day, don't we all believe the same thing? Don't we believe that God is with us? I think the truth is this. David is the only one that had eyes to see clearly that day on that battlefield. He was the only one that was in touch with reality that day. A reality that said that God would fight for his people. That God was present there. It is this belief that David had in the God that he worshipped that made the difference that day. If you really look at this David and Goliath story carefully, what you discover is that David is not portrayed to us like a hero. In fact, you could say that he is an anti-hero. First of all, he's not even a soldier. He doesn't even belong on this battlefield. He's only there because he was told by his father to bring food for his older brothers. And so what's interesting is right after David offers these glorious, brave words, his eldest brother, Eliab, uh, this is the way he responds to him. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, speaking of David, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? (laughs) Was it not but a word? (laughs) I love this exchange because it could be exchanged by any brother today, right? Any, Any couple of brothers today going, why are you picking on me? What did I do? I'm just, we're just talking here. In the eyes of Eliab, David's presence on the battlefield is a joke. And as a result, his older brother despises him for it. You little runt, what do you think you're doing here? Striding around the front lines like you're one of us, like a soldier, asking all these questions, acting like you're all tough, tough guy. But here's the crazy thing. Saul reveals how desperate he is because word gets to him that there is a boy willing to fight this giant. And Saul goes, really? (laughs) And he says, bring him to me. And he says, may God be with you, son. (laughs) Go kill the guy. And then this comical scene arises out of that. In verse 38 to 39, Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. Yeah, that's the reason, right? So David put them off. So David's a boy, and Saul is a guy taller than anyone else in Israel. And Saul puts his armor on this little kid. And he tries to walk around in these, this, 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 this armor. And David says, I cannot do this. I cannot go in this. 
I cannot even move. I cannot walk. And so he says, please get this stuff off of me. And let me just go with what I'm used to. This is not intended to make David look brave. It's intended to make him look ridiculous. How utterly ridiculous this scene is. The final insult of David the antihero comes from Goliath's lips himself. When David finally approaches him on the battlefield. Verse 42 to 44, it says this. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. In addition to the sling that David has on his hand, it's very likely that what he must have been holding is a shepherd's staff. And when Goliath sees this, he, he doesn't even know what it is. It's not a weapon of warfare. So he says, what is this? A boy coming at me with a stick. <laughs> he says, am I a dog? That this is what you come to meet my challenge? And the message is clear. There is nothing inherent in David that makes him hero material. But it is precisely David's weakness that became his strength that day. David had no illusions that he could defeat Goliath on his own strength, by his own merits. He knew that he had nothing to lean on but God alone. And so he put his total trust in God to give him the victory. In David's own words in verse 45 to 47, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth and all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. David understood that this was God's battle, not his. God was the one whose reputation was being smeared. And God would be the one who would fight for his own honor that day. It's interesting, when the face-off with Goliath finally takes place, it's really anticlimactic. <laughs> There's been this whole buildup and then the fight itself lasts like a second. It's like those Mike, Toxin, Mike Tyson boxing matches in the 1980s and 90s, if you were old enough to remember them. All this buildup and excitement about who Tyson was going to fight next, and millions of dollars generated in pay-per-view revenue. And then it ends in like 20 seconds in the first round, KO, when Tyson knocks out his next opponent. Verse 48 to 50, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, 
David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Now let me say this. The message of the David and Goliath story is not try to be more like David and show more courage in your life. When we truly understand the David and Goliath story, I do believe that it ought to result in greater courage by God's people. But it is not a courage that comes from trying to imitate David or even to be inspired by him. It makes me think of a time when I was at this pool and this pool happened to have these Olympic type of uh, high dive platforms. So all the kids were jumping off of them. And so I climbed up to the top of the platform. But, but when I looked from the top there, it was terrifying as a little kid. And all my friends were goading me, trying to get me to jump like they were jumping. And that experience struck home to me how utterly unhelpful the bravery of others is for my fears. They were going, look, it's so easy, look, uh, they all jumped. Like, oh yeah, that's the problem is I don't know how to jump off of a ledge. And they're going, look, I could do, I'll show you. I'll go first. And they just follow me, all right? <laughs> Utterly unhelpful to help me overcome my terror that day. Our courage comes from understanding that we worship a living God who fights on our behalf. That is at the heart of this David and Goliath story. Psalm 20, verse 6 to 7, the words of David in song. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 33, 16 to 19, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The story of David and Goliath teaches us that we, when we don't have the courage to face our greatest fears, God provides a champion who fights in our place. In other words, the importance of David's life is that so much of it points to the life of Jesus. Just like David did on behalf of the Israelites. Jesus would become God's champion. 
and take our place and face our penalty for our sin in order to give us peace with God. Jesus bore the condemnation that all of us deserved because we too had turned our backs on God and chosen to live our own way. And he paid a debt for us that none of us could pay ourselves. As we, like the Israelites, cower in fear, Jesus faced death. And Jesus faced the punishment of the cross on our behalf. And he took our place and he became our champion. This is what Paul is declaring to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54 to 57. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's champion language. God gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. Listen. If you follow Jesus, this is not a blanket statement that everything is going to go easy in your life. It's not saying that you will never have to suffer or struggle, but the promise is far greater than that. It is to say that through Jesus, we have peace with God that God is on our side and we are on his side. And with him with us, there is nothing that we cannot face in life and not know that it is for our good and God is with us. That is a greater promise than anything that anyone in this world could give to you is that everything in your life has purpose and has meaning and is for your good because Christ, our champion, bought us peace with God. Let's pray. When I picture the Valley of Elah those thousands of years ago, um, and I think about the Israelites camped on that hill looking at this giant. The fundamental question that was being asked that David had to ask is that simple question. Does the fact that the living God is on our side not count for anything in this? And I want to challenge all of us here today that we may call ourselves Christians and followers of Jesus But the truth may be that in all of life, for all practical purposes, we're like functional atheists. And we worry about the same things that the world worries about. And we're constantly obsessed. How am I going to get this done? How am I going to do this? And I wonder if David's question is meaningful for us this morning. David were to say to us, are we going to just stand here and look at this and do nothing? Is God not with us? 
And I wonder how many of us are living basically like functional atheists. You have compartmentalized your faith so that you can come to church and raise your hands and worship and say, God is great in this setting, but as soon as you leave the walls of this church, I don't know, where is God for you in the midst of all the challenges you're facing? Is he real? Is he present? Does he give you the courage? This is not a courage of inspiration or imitation. It is the courage of presence. It is the courage of promise that Christ, my champion, is with me. And because of what he has done to give me peace with God, I know, I know with absolute certainty this is tough. This is the toughest thing that I've ever been asked to face, but I know, I know in my heart of hearts that God is with me and that I can overcome because of that. Do you have a faith like that that can claim that promise of God and know that you have one who will fight for you and who cares about you and loves you? Can I just invite you to just spend a few moments in prayer right now before the Lord in light of the story that we've just heard this morning? I'm not trying to stir up in you a courage within yourself. All I am asking you to do is fix your eyes on Christ and realize that God is the one that can give you that courage to face your greatest fears and to not be afraid. Let's pray.